1: It's Monday, April 15th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
2: you can't touch music. It exists only at the moment it is being apprehended. And yet it can profoundly alter how we view the world and our place in it. I I wish I had the brilliance to have written that statement, but it, it's a quote from David Byrne on uh, in his uh, book, How Music Works. And it, it sets forth this incredible vision for what Music is, and music that is a passion of this week's guest, who happens to be our own Indra Viscontis.
1: <laughs> wow, it definitely feels weird to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. Yeah. Wh-
2: <laughs> why did you start um, uh, your book, and and we're going to get into uh, the details in the interview with that quote? Like, what did that quote encapsulate for you?
1: Yeah. So Byrne's book, How Music Works, was really influential for me. Um, You know, for a long time, I really kept my scientific and musical lives very separate. I mean, for like, you know, almost two decades. And, you know, people who knew me as a scientist really didn't know me as a musician and vice versa. And part of that was because I, I worried that if I took too much of a scientific lens to my life as a performer, that it would kind of steal away the magic, and, you know, I've I've read the Richard Feynman quote about how science just enhances the beauty of the flower, you know, by looking at it, by adding all these extra layers. But there was just a part of me that kind of felt like, you know, trying to dissect performance just kind of would would make it seem too mundane to be as sort of enjoyable as it was for me. So it wasn't until I started reading, um, you know, David Byrne's book, um, I actually collaborated with Oliver Sacks on his book, Philia*. Uh, just a small section of it, but, you know, kind of having conversations with him about music, that I started to think about music as, from a different perspective. So instead of trying to think about how, you know, science can help us understand music, I actually wondered whether music can help us understand neuroscience or psychology in particular. Like, if we could use what we learn as musicians um, and as passionate lovers of music to get a better handle of who we are as people, that seemed a worthwhile way to explore the topic for me.
2: And that's a, a big topic that we're going to get into. But I have to ask I think, you know, fans of this podcast, fans of your other podcast, Cadence, know that you are a huge music lover. It is a powerful force in your life. Uh, Where did that, where does that all that come from? Has that been a, is it a lifelong, like coming out of the crib? You were singing all day long?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know about that. It's definitely for better or for worse. Like there have been times in my life when I felt that I would be much more successful in a lot of ways if I didn't have this passion for music. Um, which is kind of sacrilegious to say, uh, but, but I, you know, my mom was a musician. Uh, she was a choral, she still is a choral conductor. And so, you know, I remember some of my earliest memories of, are literally of like playing underneath the piano while she had uh, rehearsals in our homes. <laughs> so we, you know, she had this big, beautiful baby grand piano, which she still has to this day. And, and, you know, that was just the centerpiece of our home. Um, but I was never very good at music. Like she, she, uh, she asked me to audition for, you know, the best choir in Toronto because, you know, it's, it's uh, Children of Immigrants. It's only going to be the best, right? So I auditioned for the Toronto Children's Chorus and I did not get in. <laughs> and, like, you're like five and they're already telling you that you don't have the talent Holy to get cow.
2: in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... It... <laughs> it was pretty devastating. Um, cause you know, I thought like, Oh, of course I'm going to get in like no one else in my elementary school or kindergarten, you know, has as much exposure to music as I do. You know, I certainly be singing ever since I was, I can remember, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even, I, I mean, I got into like, you know, the feeder choir kind of like, you know, it's like kind of the, the this is like the really back bench of the back bench. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was like, well, that's not very fun. So, uh, I ended up, auditioning for the kind of rival chorus across town called the Canadian Children's Opera Chorus. And, you know, the difference between uh, the TCC and the CCOC was that the TCC these are very like, disciplined kids, perfect intonation, you know, excellent musicians. And the CCOC was a bunch of rug rats who like ran around on stage, <laughs> but we got to be in the operas of the Canadian opera company. And that was a much better fit for me. So, you know, so that was like, those See, my listeners, early experiences.
2: Listeners don't know this, but you are kind of a rebellious spirit. Like for as accomplished <laughs> as you are, I, I kind of know exactly what you mean by the, by that other choir being a better fit. Um, Just one other question before we get to the interview. Why why this book now? Why a book entitled How Music Can Make You Better? Uh, Why kind of combine these two now? I mean, this is uh, you're in a really different stage. You're you're teaching music. You're teaching science now. It it seemed like is there something about this moment that really struck you as it's important to blend these two areas together of your life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can tell you the practical reason. The practical reason was that I, I started this podcast, Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind, as a way of exploring how you know music can help us understand our own psychology. And uh, I was lucky enough to have one of the listeners be one of the editors at Chronicle Books, who's the publisher of the book. Um, and they were looking for someone to fill out this uh, series they're calling the How series. So the first book was called How Art Can Make You Happy. Um, this was the second book. Uh, the third book coming out um, simultaneously is about poetry. Um, and then there's a fourth book in the works and that will be the series. And, and the idea was to take aspects of the fine arts that people sometimes find intimidating and classist and elitist and not very accessible and to wait show are you describing them-
2: music or science
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, in this case music in particular classical music uh right so you know and 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 in the in the case of art you know the book really came out of this 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 um this, this notion that sometimes, you know, going to modern art galleries can be really off putting for people, you know, you don't like you look at, you know, the, the, the art piece, and you're like, oh, I don't, I'm not sure I get it, <laughs> right. Um, whereas if you, you know, you look at a painting by, you know, Van Gogh, or, or, you know, a, a Monet, like, it's easier to see what's aesthetically pleasing about it, even if you don't understand, like the full history of the impressionist period, or post impressionism, or what have you. But, um, but, you know, to, to really appreciate modern art, a lot of the time, it's, you really have to to know about the context and so that can be off-putting and so so um, Bridget Watson Payne who wrote the first book was really trying to kind of go against that and and show people that there are ways in which you can incorporate art in your life that you know makes you happy uh, so simple simple concept uh, so how music can make you better sort of came out of that there's this no you know it's sort of you know it's, it's a nod to the Mozart effect which you know we'll talk about I'm sure in a minute but um but this kind of this kind of idea that um, you know music isn't just something that has to be hard or, or kind of just in the left to the professionals that it's something that, you know, we can all participate in, um, and that we can all benefit from. Um, but the sort of, you know, the, the personal sort of side of of why this book now, um, is in part because, you know, there have been books, you know, great books by Dan Levitin by Oliver Sacks written about sort of the brain basis of music. Um, there are a lot of other authors, Jan Pegsepp and, and, and so forth who ha- have tackled this topic. Um, and there have been books by, you know, people sort of talking about musicology and and music, and and I and in in my opinion, there wasn't really a book that kind of bridged both worlds that kind of was both music appreciation and enough sort of scientific background to give people some meat on sort of you know what's happening in the brain when we're affected by music, um and and I should say it's a short book, uh so <laughs> uh, it's only. 15,000 words, uh, but it has a lot of references, like, you know, a third of the book is is in the reference section. So the idea is to kind of, you know, get you interested in some of these topics. And then, you know, if you want to explore them further, you know, there's a big bibliography to choose from. But the sign of
2: a great science book is a really, really long bibliography.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I appreciate that sentiment a lot, that music is for everyone and that science can help make that music experience even better. Indre Viscontis, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
1: It's so nice to be here, Kishore. <laughs> yeah, first time, long time, right? Yeah.
2: So I consider myself a music Luddite. I, I would never describe myself as a music person. And one of the things you do early in the book is try to uh, essentially disespouse myself of that, uh, of that notion that we're all music people, that, that music is a human endeavor.
1: Yeah, like what what makes you think that you're not into music or that it's not something that is your thing?
2: I guess a, a couple things. Like, I I don't consider myself as somebody that can that can hold a tune. Let's just say, <laughs> and even though I played an instrument growing up, I wasn't particularly adept at it. So there's something about like a little bit of of skill that I that I can't really sing and that I can't really uh, play an instrument that well. But moreover, I, I feel like my musical tastes have not evolved in recent time. I listen to the same stuff that I listened to as a teenager. So those are two different things.
1: Yeah. Although they're very typical and they're, they're one of the things that I try to overturn in the book or at least explain. And, you know, the first one is one that I think, uh, you know, David Byrne has described as a modern tragedy. This idea that if you're not, you know, a perfect player, if you're not, you know, a truly skilled performer, that somehow music is not for you. And, and for so much of human uh, civilization, That simply was not the case. Music was just like speaking and and reading. I mean, we don't talk about like how good we are at reading or how good we are at speaking. Like if you're not an orator, you're still going to use language to communicate for the most part, right? Even if you're not, you know, Barack Obama. Uh, so I think that that's kind of sad that we've kind of come into this culture now where, yes, we have the access to all the these amazing musicians at our fingertips, you know, with a Spotify subscription. Um, and so why should I try to make music when, you know, I can access all these these great performances? Um, and the answer is because that's the point of music is to you know communicate and to express yourself. And it feels good. Um, one of the things I'd like to talk about is something I actually learned on the um, Ear Hustle podcast, uh, which is that playing music in prisons is one of the greatest privileges that a prisoner can earn Uh, playing music, like, you know, literally rocking out. And I think that even if you don't have a background in music, there's something really cathartic about the ability to make music. Um, And it doesn't take a lot of instruction. I mean, you know, with just a few, uh, you know, just a few minutes, you can you can start to to make meaningful music right away. The problem is, is that, you know, we've, we've set this bar really high. And the way that we teach music is often misguided. I mean, we try to teach to perfection, we start with scales, you know, and these things are boring, like no child has like, you know, jumped out of bed and said, I want to be a musician so that I can play scales. <laughs> right. So, you know, if, if we're some some uh, um, students understand that you need to you know develop skills and and playing scales and doing these exercises will get you to where you want to be Uh, but that's not a direct path for a lot of people um and yet you know i think that i think that's why the guitar is so popular because like you know with a few chords you can you can start cool it's well it's cool i think because it's very accessible you know it's like and you know that's why so many pop singers play guitar it's like it seems like we've 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 um shown people that you don't need to be a virtuosa guitar player. I mean, if, if the only guitar we were exposed to were, you know, Sergio Assad or like people who are extremely good at playing the guitar, uh, you know, we, none of us would pick it up because we'd be like, that sounds impossible to do.
2: It's kind of amazing the parallels you're describing music training with science training too, because Mm -hmm. like if, if we just flip those words, I think we would be having a, 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 a discussion that still would make sense to a lot of people. Uh, and beyond that, like the sense that you don't have to be a musician to make music. You don't have to be a scientist to do science. Like those are yeah. universalities. And one of the things I, I sort of love about that universal theme that you kind of get into it towards the end of the book is there is an open debate um, around what came first, language or music. And I love like the thought experiment. And that's not something I think we can solve, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even sure that um, that that question. I mean, I, I don't know what answering that question will ultimately tell us. You know what I mean? So, you know, I like to think of uh, you know what what if there's like a third possibility, which is that music is a tool like fire, <laughs> right? Like, um, if it wasn't for fire, we would not have been able to uh, have these big brains that are so metabolically costly because we could not cook our food and get enough protein. We'd be we'd be you know, be grazing raw vegetables like the gorillas are, and therefore, you know, have smaller than average brains for our primate body size, because we simply can't fuel it, right? That's, that's the difference between a gorilla and a, and a human, in part. Um, and, and so, you know, you can think of music as a tool like fire, but this particular tool helps us understand each other, it helps us create bonds, it helps us work together. Uh, it essentially is a form of communication that is very deep that taps into you know, are nonverbal uh, um, ways of exchanging ideas, and and so that's very powerful, um, and that's why I think that you know that this idea of that it's just uh, you know it's 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 a it's an evolutionary artifact, or as opposed to like a fundamental part of who we are as human beings, uh, is probably misguided because you know again it depends on how you define music, but certainly if you think about how it is that you talk to a baby, the baby responds to prosody first, right? The emotional. Uh, melody of the utterances, uh, that you're, that you're giving not to the semantic content. And even though we have parts of our brain that are essentially sort of ready to accept and learn language, um, we have parts of our brain that are ready and, you know, accept uh, learning music right from the beginning as well. Um, so, you know, I think that, that these, these things are, are tied together. Um, and, and, You know, as you you say, like, I think that it's just sort of how we approach music and and, and what what we think it is that sort of turns some people off and makes them feel as if they're just not good enough, just like, you know, a person who did not you know, who'd had trouble memorizing all the biology, you know, in 11th grade considers himself not a scientist, you know what I mean? Because they're like, well, I, you know, it was hard for me or, or you know, it's hard to understand the chemical structure of something, or I failed chemistry in grade 10. And, you know, then I, therefore I'm not a good scientist. And and that, those are not the skills that are required to be a scientist for one thing, or to do science. And, and it's the same thing with music. I mean, you know, there are people who just aren't good technical players, but who are really great musicians. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and so I think that that's kind of, you know, if you, if you have something to say and you have a deep understanding of, of sort of your own humanity, then you in some ways are already a musician. You just haven't figured out which outlet to, to let it go on, on.
2: So you mentioned the brain a couple of times in that answer. And I want to start there uh, because you you put forth something uh, that we've all heard, like the the tree falls in the woods analogy, and you have answered the question <laughs> with finality now. So if a tree falls in the forest and there is no one there to hear it, does it make a sound Andre? Nope. Why not? <laughs> because... why not so why?
1: Well, it changes the uh, the the air compressions, right so it it creates a, it creates a, a a change in the uh, pressure of air that permeates out from where it fell. But if you can imagine another kind of animal that takes those air pressure changes and turns it into a visual signal right where all of a sudden they can see air pressure changes, um, then you would say that that person sees the tree fall right um, in terms of of, of it, it sort of making a sound but so so if we hear the tree fall, it's because our inner ear, our cochlea has turned that air pressure change into um, a membrane potential change, and that our brains have then assigned that uh, a kind of uh, meaning or value, and and so our auditory cortex, higher areas of our brain, give us the conscious perceptual experience of hearing, of hearing sound. Uh, So, so that is, so the sound is not in, you know, the, the wave, it's in how your brain interprets the wave. Um, Because, again, if you have a person who is hard of hearing, for example, and is wearing a cochlear implant, they will hear that same sound differently than you and I will, although the cochlear implants are getting very good these days, um, they will still have, you know, a different uh, perception.
2: Or just... Just like a person that's young, like a baby, they're going to have a very different experience as somebody that's that's older or uh, or even has a brain that doesn't sort of that is um, going through like dementia or changes in that way
1: yeah or even just hearing loss, right? I mean, you could say that then they won't hear, but yes, anyone who go who's going through these changes, or if you're a musician and you're trained to listen to things, and let's say especially that you're a musical instrument, let's say you're a percussionist and your musical instrument sounds a lot like a tree falling, you will hear that tree falling differently you will you will pick up on different aspects of that sound wave because after all, your brain doesn't take a sound wave and turn it into something you know, kind of permanent, it's affected by your experience. That's why, you know, people who are born in, in a very noisy environment where they have to tune out a lot of irrelevant noise, uh, they t- t- tend to find it difficult to distinguish speech sounds in a, in a noisy environment later on in life. Uh, so it's called the, you know, the signal to noise ratio, they, they, have a, they have trouble um, hearing speech, say, in a, in a, in a busy restaurant. Um, but a person who is a musician, actually, not only can hear better in that under those conditions, but also, for example, can more accurately name the emotion in a baby's cry. <laughs> um, so you you can play, you know, you can you can, as the observer, know why the baby is crying, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. hungry, or it's upset, or it just fell down and bumped its head. Um, and if you then take those sound waves, and you play them to musicians, musicians are better at... Uh, figuring out why that baby is crying than non-musicians because their brains are more attuned to parsing meaning out of that sound. Um, so it's very much to me, uh, to me, it's it's an it's pardon the pun a no-brainer um, that if there <laughs> is no brain, there is no sound.
2: So you you sold me that music is subjective and um, and that it is in our brain. Then it must have impacts that we can measure in our brain. Like, uh, I'm addicted to certain kinds of music. Like I grew up on, on metal, so I still Mm -hmm. like heavy metal now. Why do we see music as addictive and do we have proof that it is actually addictive?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, again, it depends on your definition of addiction. And some people will take, uh, take, you know, issue with that because addiction suggests that you develop a tolerance <laughs> and that yeah, you have yeah. to go through Yeah, we're, okay, right, we're not talking about this. Okay, we're not not going there. Okay. But it what it means is that you want more of it, right, when you hear it and that it also that it stimulates the reward system in your brain. So in your brain you have a series of of uh, networks uh, uh, that sort of t- look at look at the environment uh, and and sort of assign value to stimuli according to how rewarding they are. And they can be rewarding because they lead to reproduction. It can be rewarding because they satisfy a drive like hunger, thirst, what have you. Right. Um, And so drugs, addictive drugs in particular, drive the system. So if you think about like, you know, when you take, Cocaine. If you take cocaine, uh, you know it it boosts the amount of um, sort of signal sent in this region, the amount of neurotransmitter in in these regions, you know, by like three hundred percent. So we also see an increase, not quite as. steep as taking cocaine Um, when you listen to music that you like. uh, We see these brain regions activated. Um, We also see that you will make decisions on the basis of how activated these regions are. So for example, if you, if someone plays you a piece of music that really uh, shows a strong activation of your reward pathway, you're actually willing to pay more uh, to buy that particular piece of music than if you're played something that really doesn't activate your reward pathway. That totally makes intuitive sense, right? You know, it seems that we like it, and you know, people report that they that they like it more. You know, we could ask them like, "Do you like this piece of music?" And and yes, and and that that also maps onto how much of their reward system is activated.
2: This week's episode is brought to you by Magellan TV Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe it's built by documentary filmmakers and filled with new programs that are added on a weekly basis they offer movies series exclusive playlists across a wide variety of genres like science technology history space and nature. From computers and the rise of artificial intelligence to the basic laws of chemistry, physics, and biology, viewers can explore the impressive advances of science and technology. Watch anytime, anywhere, on your television, on your laptop, on your mobile device. A large number of the programs are available in 4K with no additional cost, and you can stream them all without any interruptions. It's available on Roku, iOS, Android, and you can cast it as well. I personally love, uh, I just watched the Journey to the Alps series, which is a 10-episode series taking you to the heights of the Alps. Uh, my son is obsessed with the Spider-Man tech episode that explores the wonderful, weird world if Spider-Man's inventions came to life. So start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash Minds. That's MagellanTV.com slash Minds.
1: Can you find the challenge you need to push yourself further? Can you thrive in a competitive, collaborative community? Can you rise to the caliber of Ivy League students? You can at Columbia University School of General Studies. Receive a genuine college experience under the guidance of world-renowned faculty and personalized advice from mentors dedicated to meeting the unique needs of non-traditional students. Students are either just beginning their undergraduate educations or resuming them after a break from school. They've maybe had careers or served in the military, raised families, they lead rewarding lives, and now obtaining an Ivy League college education is their next milestone. GS students possess real-world experience, and it's that experience with research-backed support programs that inspires a greater desire for academic success along the journey to earning a prestigious Columbia University degree. You were born to explore your passion and potential this is where you were always meant to be. To discover how you can continue your story, visit gs.columbia.edu slash podcast. Fall regular decision application deadline is June 1st, so apply today.
2: If we can identify these pathways where we're seeing sort of some binding to receptors that suggest like some some reward some addiction systems is there kind of like a a, a universality to this like is this generalizable uh, across uh humans to the point where we can see music that is more quote-unquote addictive than others <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So there, as I mentioned at the top, there is a lot of subjectivity to music, because uh, as you learned, the music that you kind of found, uh, especially in your teenage years, and your early 20s, is very influential, no matter how old you are. Um, And that no, it's just the best.
2: It's just, it's just (laughs) Just, empirically the best. Yeah,
1: yeah. objectively, it's just the best music. Yeah. I mean, the irony is, of course, that you can even uh, later on in your life, recognize that it's actually not the best. Um, And and as as you mentioned, you were sort of like, well, I'm kind of embarrassed about my musical tastes, like, you know, why are you embarrassed by them if it's the best, right? And and the reason is, is that we, again, we have this kind of more sophisticated knowledge of, of you know, what is great music, or what we think great music is. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, we can, we still f- enjoy the music of that period of our lives, even if we can objectively say, actually, it's not that great, it's repetitive, it's not that complex, it's not that interesting, but boy, like, it just makes me happy when I hear it. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons, you know, we talk, there are a lot of reasons for that. But um, but part of that is because, you know, at the time in which you were experiencing that music, you were probably forming bonds with new friends, uh, with new people. You were, fi- you were figuring out who you are and separating yourself from your parents. Um, so that's why we see a lot of... Friction that happens between parental musical choices and the choices that their you know teenage children ultimately gravitate towards. Um, you know they're they're trying to separate themselves from from um, their tribe, and that's in some you know you can argue that that's uh, evolutionarily very adaptive because now you want to go away from your tribe so that or from your immediate genetic relatives so that you can, you know, mate with genetically dissimilar people and, and uh, create a, you know, a human being that has more genetic diversity. But um, anyway, uh, you know, I say that in part because, you know, even Darwin suggested that music really is an aphrodisiac. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that it's a part of sexual selection, um, but you know there So, so there's that that component to it. So, so what is rewarding about it uh, ultimately will depend on sort of you know is it is it hitting that sort of sweet spot for you. Um, but in, in if you want to, and so you know what what you found great in those time periods, you know, or what you were exposed to will have a big impact on ultimately how you like music in the future. But If you asked, like, what are some of the general principles that make some music better than others? You know, James Taylor has said that, you know, music is just a huge release of tension. Um, So the more you can build up tension in a musical piece and then release it, uh, the more rewarding it seems to be. In fact, we can see in the brain... Uh, The parts of your reward pathway that track desire, that track wanting, uh, are more activated in the anticipation phase of a musical piece, and then when you get to the climax, where you know some people even experience a physiological response called the chills. You know they get goosebumps and so forth. um, You know that is where we see a, a, a boost in the nucleus accumbens in terms of how much. You know dopamine it has, um, which we think of as the liking part of the reward pathway. That is the part that you know if you if you insert an, an electrode into the nucleus accumbens of a rat and then teach the rat to press a lever to get stimulation in that area, you know that rat will do nothing more than press that le- like lever. Like it it you know it will run over um, an electrified grid to push that lever, which it won't do by the way if it's starving and there's food on the other side of that grid. Um, so it's a very you Know so that's like a really rewarding area. So, um, so that's kind of what we see. You know, it, it, it's actually one of the ways in which uh, the science of music affected my own work as a performer. Like, you know, my my singing teacher used to always say things like, uh, "Don't, it's not the high note that's important. It's like all the notes leading up to the high note." In my head, I'd be like, "That can't be true. I mean, if you mess up the high note, like, forget about it. No one's going to come hear you again." <laughs> uh, the high note is is the you know the money note. Um, But what she was trying to get at is the fact that, you know, if you don't set up the high note properly, people don't anticipate it, they don't expect it. um, It's not as rewarding. You need to give people, you need to set up that desire, that need for the release of tension. And then, you know, once you actually do release the tension, that is much more rewarding.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're describing basically like every action movie score, like the Avengers does this super well Mm -hmm. of like using move uh, music to drive the tension of a moment until there's some incredible climactic moment. Um, And one of the things that I I thought was just utterly fascinating is you you sort of uh, make the suggestion that if we if we just created algorithm some sort of ai that was going to make a music score that just sort of follows that in this rote pattern that just makes the music according to what works it it doesn't quite tap into it the way that human musicians do and, and you kind of use some examples i was surprised about like you tap into hip-hop as a way of of how they uh, play with our sense of time and our sense of tension um uh, that a computer never could uh, Uh, talk about hip hop and what is happening in our brain when we listen to it this was uh, like I just want to say to the listeners this was super weird for me when I started thinking about hip hop as as like uh, music that was driving that was using essentially music theory behind it
1: yeah I mean again it's like what people don't think of it all, uh, you know, as, as sort of like a high form of music, although anybody who's really into hip hop will understand how complex that music really is and how difficult it is to perform it well. <laughs> um, um, you know, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult, incredibly technically challenging. But, you know, I just want to get back to this question of like, you know, the algorithm and the computer. And, and the truth is, is that it's, o- it's when we think that a computer is composing music that we don't find the music as, you know, we, we actually listen to it differently. Once again, the tree falling in the forest. But like for example people who are played excerpts that were you know composed by a computer and they were told that it was composed by a human being, um, will report liking the expert more than if they're told it is uh, composed by a computer. And what we see in their brains is that when they think it's being composed by a human, um, their sort of theory of mind regions tend to activate more um, compared to when they think it's just a a computer. So we listen differently if we think that there is intention behind the music. And I think that again, speaks to the fact that music really is a way of communicating uh, ideas and, and emotions non-verbally, um, that our brains just, you know, we, we, we pay attention to the stimulus differently. If, if, if we know it's coming from a human being, that's we're really interested in other humans. But this question of hip hop, I think, is a really interesting one, because, you know, when I ask people, like, um, you know, what kind of music do you like? You often hear, I like all kinds of music, except an insert genre here. (laughs) Um, Sometimes it's opera, uh, which makes me sad. Uh, Sometimes it's rap. Sometimes it's hip hop. Sometimes it's heavy metal. Um, You know, you don't generally hear people say, well, I don't like folk music, although country music sometimes, uh, you know, can come up there, too. But but in any case, you know, part of the reason I think that um, that hip hop can have a a bad uh, reputation is that people don't really understand where it came from and what to listen for. Um, And if you think about hip hop as coming out of this culture, particularly of inner cities, like, um, you know, inner cities in uh, in inner parts of Manhattan, uh, where, you know, people who were disenfranchised really had nowhere to go. And so they set up uh, dance parties in the streets. And as a result, as of of how they started, you know, they started um, beatboxing and they started taking like you know, uh, uh, they wanted to make people sort of dance longer and longer and longer. And so they would take, you know, the sort of uh, these 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 parts of dance pieces and like kind of put them together um, in ways that were clever and clever. And then they would, on top of that, use spoken word to express themselves. Um, and so if you think about like the kind of clever uh, ways in which speech is used to a beat, uh, then you start to understand um, both rap and hip hop and how, you know, What what people are doing there is really you know expressing themselves in in a very kind of um, interesting and clever way Uh, and uh, but then you then you add onto the layer of that um, the sort of hip hop wars of the east coast and west
2: coast you know and the oh we're getting into east coast west coast beefs now
1: Uh, yeah right and and so and when you think about it like you've got this like real tribalism that happens um, you know a, a. according to these coasts and that is translated into sound that ultimately even leads to, you know, murder. (laughs) Right. I mean, this is like no joke. Uh, And in some ways, like you could argue that if it wasn't for the music industry and the way that the music industry was playing into the lives of so many people um, you know, there would not have been these rivalries that ultimately led to um, the deaths of some of the uh, most famous musicians in their circles.
2: I want to talk about something that's happening in my experience right now. I went to see a movie the other day, and they played the song Eye of the Tiger in the middle of it, and it is completely stuck in my head. And it will not leave. We all know the experience of an earworm. I bet you people can hear Eye of the Tiger in their head right now, just me saying (laughs) the name of the song. Um, Why are we so... Uh, disposed to this idea of an earworm of a song just getting stuck in our in our heads that it's just cycling through our memory constantly.
1: Well, I will tell you what what so far has been the cruelest moment of my book tour, um, and that was an interview I did with an NPR program called On Point. And to introduce the uh, concept of earworms, they played a clip of Baby Shark. <laughs> Oh, no, that's the worst <laughs> oh, yeah. one. Uh, it's it's in my head now. Where I know, I know, I can't <laughs> get it out. So anyway, so what what are earworms? They're really interesting. Um, essentially, they are uh, hallucinations uh, that you know, you know, are involuntary musical imagery uh, that essentially, you know, just gets stuck in your head that you can't get, can't get rid of it. Um, so the songs that are most likely to serve as earworms are ones that have a repetitive hook that doesn't kind of have a... a uh, a, an ending right so baby shark goes on forever wheels on the bus goes on forever eye of the tiger um, who let the dogs out um, another one is the lion sleeps tonight right so you can they're, they're almost like pieces that could go on and on and on and in, in kind of sometimes they're in round form uh, or, or what have you and and so your brain once it starts going through uh, the process of recreating this melody in your head doesn't know where to stop so it just keeps going <laughs> Um, the cure for earworms for most people is to actually, you know, voluntarily hijack that thread and let it, you know, sing through in, in your head until it stops um, or, you become really get, take your whole attentional focus and become engrossed in something really, uh, you know, entertaining, (laughs) Um, you know, turn on your favorite movie or, or uh, your, you know, favorite podcast or what have you, and really kind of focus in on that. Um, But you
2: have to get focused on it. So you you have to do something. Usually
1: that's right. Like if you're just checking email or like doing things that don't require your full attentional focus, like even driving for a lot of us, like it'll just keep going on in the background. (laughs) But interestingly enough, people who have a real problem with earworms um, might also have uh, some other behaviors that are on the uh, op- obsessive compulsive spectrum. Uh, because we do think that the caudate nucleus, which is um, this nucleus that's involved in the reward system, but also can be overactive and OCD. Uh, essentially, it's it, it, it's a habit learning, a habit habit forming um, region of the brain uh, can be overactive in people who, who, are, who have persistent earworms. Um, so that to me is interesting, too, that in some ways, like, you know, if you do suffer from persistent earworms, for one thing, you, you're, you're probably musically inclined, um, because people who like music more or who are more, have a, have a closer relationship to music are more likely to experience earworms. Um, but you also might be a little obsessive.
2: All right. There's nothing wrong there. with being a little obsessed as somebody is completely obsessed with <laughs> science hockey and a million other things. Um it but going back to just really what this book is about, which is about how music can make you better. I think w- moving beyond just your your brain, let's talk about the the actual impacts on like on performance. Like I think we can all relate to this idea. I don't think anyone that has ever gone to an exercise class has not heard the music beat going in the background, and every runner knows that um, uh, but it also you highlight a number of examples of of music not just increasing performance or, or driving pace but actually having uh, impacts in terms of therapeutics and and how we deal with um, uh, with stress or pain or other really measurable conditions. Can you talk about music and how it can actually like heal us and what it taps into?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So, you know, just uh, as, a, as an aside about the sports part too, um, interestingly enough, like, you know, yeah, like if, if you go to a soul cycle class and you're paying like $32 to be on a stationary bike and all of a sudden their their music you know system is broken, like that's a disaster, right? No one's going to want to, class is not nearly going to be as fun. Um, so, but if you're an elite athlete and you're, you know, running a, a, the, the Boston Marathon and you're already at your max, it turns out that music actually doesn't uh make you that much better either the, the data there are kind of mixed so it depends on you know for those of us who are amateur athletes it certainly can help us keep motivated and and keep training but if you're an elite athlete um the fact that you can't listen to music while you're you know doing your sport is probably not actually hurting your performance but you're right. There are ways in which um, music, you know, is is a, a model of neuroplasticity. It's actually uh, pretty easy to see brain changes, both um, anatomical and functional, with music training. Um, that that's why we, the musician's brain is is often hailed as this model of neuroplasticity and and often studied as such. Um, so that means that if the brain is damaged uh, because of a stroke, because of you know a tumor, um, in Gabby Giffords' case, because of a bullet bullet wound, um, you can actually use music in certain certain cases to help rewire the brain um, to initiate that plasticity. Uh, and to help uh, the brain either regenerate parts that have been damaged or um, reorganize, such that parts that are still intact now take over those functions. So, you know, the example of Gabby Giffords is where, you know, she had a, the bullet uh, hit her in part, her left frontal lobe and it left her unable to produce speech to talk. And that was obviously incredibly uh, hard for her because she was a person who, you know, it was an exceptional order before the, um, um Incident. So, one of the ways in which music therapists have um, have been helpful. In her case, it was a, is a speech therapist that was using music. Um, but these days, I should say, music therapy is really uh, gaining a resurgence, and 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 we're starting to see really measurable ways in which um, using music in a therapeutic setting can have um, objectively positive results in a lot of different diseases and, and conditions um in any case what they do is they sort of uh retrain the the right side of the brain to to um through music be able to uh, produce some of the speech that was lost because of the left-sided injury so for example you know there's this great video of her where you know she's struggling to say the word light and then um eventually she is able to sing uh this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And so, and you, you hear her sing it uh, and say the word light when literally just seconds ago, she could not formulate that particular word. And, it, and it's really powerful. And I think, you know, anyone who has um, a, a loved one who has suffered from dementia or any kind of neurological injury, but then has retained the ability to sing um, or to appreciate music, it, it's really remarkable. Um and, you know, we can get into the weeds of why that is. But um, but ultimately, I think that because music is rewarding, because it hits that reward pathway, um, and because, you know, it seems to have, uh, you know, m- multiple representations in the brain, it can be a really great tool to access some of this neuroplasticity uh, to keep people motivated to continue their therapy. So another example is there's this great program out of the University of Calgary where people with Parkinson's disease use a smartphone app um that makes them uh, rewards them for taking larger steps so in parkinson's disease one of the things that's hard is that over time they uh, people start showing the what we call the um, Parkinsonian shuffle where their steps get very short and it's hard to initiate movement. And um, so in this, in this uh, intervention, they listen to music and the music uh, stops if they don't take strides that are long enough. And so they are both motivated and they can use the beat of the music to kind of entrain uh, that particular movement. And, and it's, it's it seems really effective. So, you know, I think there are a lot of ways in which music can be used specifically in these therapeutic settings. Uh, but as you mentioned too, you know, people who listen to music before they go um, under the knife uh, actually report n- maybe not needing as much pain medication or anesthesia. And so, you know, and it's because it it targets the same uh, neurotransmitter systems. I mean, you know, it targets opioid receptors, it targets the, the reward system. Um, and, you know, it 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 is it can um, decrease your stress level uh, and so forth. So uh, all of that makes it, it really a powerful tool.
2: But you also emphasize, which, you know, loyal fans of this uh, podcast know, that this is not something that you just do casually, that there's deliberate practice that usually underpins, uh, this, this idea in order to really tap into some of these effects.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think that, um, you know, sometimes, uh, music therapy has, has, has not, hit its full potential in part because there wasn't as big a impetus to sort of see what kinds of uses of music are, are more or less effective now it's become much more evidence-based and all the great music therapy programs really have a big focus on research and and understanding objectively you know how to make it um, useful and and I think the same is true now of a lot of music training programs we're really starting to see that you know just running scales over and over and over again like you know for 10,000 hours is not going to make you a great musician. I mean there's lots of, you know, there's lots of studies showing that, you know, people who have a genetic predisposition towards music and practice 20,000 hours, you know, they're not any better than their, you know, twin um brothers and sisters who only practiced 5,000 hours. Um, but you know the the answer is that is that there's you know things it's more complicated than that. Not every practice hour is created equal, and deliberate practice is something very specific that Anders Ericsson has has talked about. You know there's really importance. Um, the major thing is to be able to have a teacher who is is really exceptional in the field and is able to guide your strategies. Um, in practice and that you use feedback during the practice that you're constantly pushing against your comfort zone um, so you know, a lot of us practice things that we're good at, and we do it over and over again because it, you know feels good and it's easy, but you know your brain's not changing <laughs> if it's easy. Um, you know, you're you're just maintaining. So, so yeah, I think that that i'm I'm really excited actually about the future of um, understanding how music training, how deliberate practice uh, affects uh, measurable changes in the brain. And I think we're getting a lot better at figuring out how to make practice efficient. That's a passion of mine. And that will mean that even if you are picking up an instrument for the first time in middle age, you know, you should be able to see pretty measurable changes pretty quickly if you are practicing in a way that is is really in, in line with a lot of these um, uh, practices and tools.
2: We've talked about music in the context of the individual, the individual brain, the individual effects that that make you better. But To me, music is a social endeavor. It's something that you enjoy with a musician, you enjoy with your friends, you enjoy with colleagues, you enjoy with strangers. And you spend really the last part of the book talking about how music can do more than just make us individually better. It can really help shape society.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I, you know, to me, music is a fundamentally social act. It's, it's very powerful social glue. You know, if you think about, if you look at pictures of um, music fans in, uh, you know, in a, in a stadium enjoying their favorite band, I mean, you just see it in their eyes. They are all kind of. You know, feeling connected through music, um, and and I think that's that's fundamentally where music came from. I think it's the 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 power that it serves is, is to connect us and make us feel as if we are not alone. I mean, what's better in the middle of a breakup than listening to a great song where you can suddenly nod and nod along and say, "Yeah, that's exactly how I feel." This person has gone through the same thing that I have, and and now I feel better <laughs> because I'm not alone. Um, so I think that that's that's really the the power of music. You know, in terms of connecting people with Alzheimer's disease back with their loved ones you know someone who's been unresponsive for a long time and all of a sudden seems to wake up because you can share a musical experience with them again very very powerful but this doesn't mean that it's always for good right like um you know, my favorite band growing up was U2. And, you know, Sunday Bloody Sunday was a very powerful song talking about, you know, a, 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 a very bloody incident uh, that happened in Ireland during the conflicts. And, you know, Bono, it some, you know, got nervous about playing that song in certain uh, times, because he was just worried it was going to incite more violence. And so he would at the beginning of his um, of the of the performance of the piece say, this is not a rebel song. <laughs> Like, don't go out and, you know, this is not to incite more violence because he recognized that, in fact, music can be a powerful way to get people to behave badly. So, you know, oxytocin, which is the hormone that is involved in attachment and love and is is in greater levels, in, you know, levels increase when you're listening to music that you connect with. Um, but it's also the hate hormone uh, because it not only makes you feel more connected to the people that you are you're in group, but it also makes you more aggressive towards people that you deem as part of your outgroup, who might be threatening people in your in group. So, you know, I think in that sense, like, you know, it has this power, but it's not always positive. And, and, and that's why, you know, you know, we music has been used in, in some of these um, major conflict situations for better or for worse.
2: I mean, it's a tool like any other tool. It can be used for mm-hmm. good or for ill. Um, and it matters how you use that tool. But what I love is the sense that, uh, by and large, when we look throughout history, music has been used as a tool to bring people together. Uh, mm-hmm. And whether it's to bring people together for a shared experience, whether it's to bring people together um, uh, to really build out an identity, whether it's just to bring people together because humans just like being uh, together. Um, you look back and you see music is, uh, or i with, this thought that you end the book with, I think encapsulates: it. music is and always should be for everyone. It can make us all better.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I really do believe that, and, you know, there's, there's, there's no social gathering that is not enhanced by music in my humble, but accurate opinion.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Indre Viscontis. Thank you so much for joining us. On Inquiring minds. Uh, the new book is how music can make you better. And it's available from Chronicle books at booksellers everywhere
1: yeah and I should say for those of you who bought the book and um, some people have found it difficult to read because the pages uh, the font color uh, and the page color uh, can be um, a little bit difficult uh, you know under certain lighting conditions um, the next printing of the book so the, the first printing I think is already sold out the next printing will have lighter paper uh, so that contrast will be higher uh, so uh, you know wait that out and uh and then you know if that's you um you order the book or order the kindle edition um so a,
2: a book that's responsive to readers needs love it <laughs> I
1: know, amazing huh <laughs> all right that's it for another episode i want to thank you for joining us for this installment of inquiring minds and we'd like to thank our supporters on our patreon campaign especially david noel charles Blyle, clark lindgren michael Galgool, stephen meyer awald kyle royhalla joelle jonathan worsley yushi lin eric clark jordan millar Herring chang and sean johnson you can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show.
2: Just not that baby shark song. Inquiring Minds <laughs> Don't is for... not send that! No, no. <laughs> Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian And
1: we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre And
2: I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.
1: Inquiring Minds is supported by Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a weekly podcast that explores why rising income inequality will lead to pitchforks and what we can do about it. Every week, Hanover is joined by some of the world's most original economic thinkers in a convention-busting exploration of who gets what and why in the American economy. If you want to learn how to make the economy work for all Americans, subscribe to Pitchfork Economics at pitchforkeconomics.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast.